You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor at Nori's Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today, I have an alumnus here with me, Paul Greenberg, fisherman and author of Four Fish, American Catch, The Omega Principle. Uh, His latest book, The Climate Diet, 50 Simple Ways to Trim Your Carbon Footprint, upon which we did our previous podcast episode together. But today, we're going to talk about a new podcast that you had come out, Paul, called Fish Talk. So thanks for being here. My pleasure. It's nice to be on the other end of the podcasting universe for a little while. Yeah, I'm very curious to hear about your podcasting experience. A lot of people ask me about starting podcasts and what it's like. You know, there's there's a lot of jokes about it. I t- sometimes share. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, well, you sometimes say that the worst part of having a podcast is having to tell people you do a podcast because then they groan and go, oh, of course you have a podcast. Yes, and everybody yes. has one. Well, you know, we were talking before we started recording about, you know, our mutual connections to the former Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, I used to work in the former Soviet Union. And so I spent a lot of time in Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. So I like to, I've just been referring to the whole world as Podcastistan. Podcastistan. Yeah, I guess. It's a sort of, it's it's a little bit of a, like a banana republic. You know, where where there are some people who have amassed huge fortunes, but the vast majority are peasants tilling the fields, growing cotton with their calloused hands. So Wow. Okay. So yeah, it's like Gimlet and Joe Rogan, and then the rest of us by the sweat of our brow out here. Right. Pretty much. Okay. We're going to stage a revolution. Probably not. I think we'll probably just talk into the ether some. Full disclosure, my partner, my life partner was an item with Alex Bloomberg of Gimlet. And I knew Alex Bloomberg back in the day before Gimlet, <laughs> when Gimlet was just an idea. Well, how about that? Okay, it's good that you have that disclosure there present just so people listening No, Well, you know, people don't want, you know, you're in academic papers, you know, I, you're supposed to show your conflicts of interest. To, that might be my, I don't know if that's a conflict of interest. I don't but. know that this counts, but <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. It is a fun wrinkle to destroy. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So Fish Talk, though, it's a great show. I listened to all of it. I really just uh, enjoy these topics. And podcasting is maybe a great venue for this that maybe are not obviously the most interesting. I know I know that's like a little bit of a pejorative way to frame it. But really, there's a lot to talk about with fish. Your books are all super interesting in the same way. There's a lot of nuance happening within the world of fisheries. Um, and this is a way to explore it. That's my take on what you're doing, at least. Is that broadly accurate? Yeah. And, you know, in a way, it's kind of directed, you know, when I was a kid, I was such a lunatic fisherman that, like, literally, if there were a puddle that I passed on vacation, I would perk up and be like, anything in there? You know, and what I've come to realize over the years, you know, I've done a lot of public speaking around my my fish books. What I realize is that in any audience, like I look out over the audience and it's usually, you know, you're foodie, sciencey, blah, blah, blah. And then in one corner, I can always see them are the fish people. And I know they are the people who would cast that same lure into that same puddle. So to some degree, I think the podcast is directed at those people, but it's also directed at people those people as they've grown up and understood that there's an overfishing crisis and there's a climate crisis, but that also we're in this foodie moment. So it's kind of meant to be a Venn diagram of eating fish, environmental stuff, catching fish, that kind of thing. So that that's what we had in mind when we put it together. 
explore some interesting avenues too, like the idea of what even is the correct term for this lab grown shrimp? Yes, yes. Well, so yeah, so in our first episode, which is called Goldilocks and the Three Shrimp, we try three different kinds of shrimp. We try wild shrimp, a farm shrimp, and this actually is not a lab-grown shrimp. It was a vegan shrimp. And there are lab-grown shrimp on the way, but in particular, what we were tasting was something called a mind-blown shrimp, which is this product that's been put out by the Van Cleef Seafood Company. And it's basically made out of konjac powder, which, you know, I don't know how deeply you go into food. You strike me, where do you put yourself on the foodie spectrum? I I would say more foodie than not. Yeah. I, I know a lot more about it than I'm able to prepare it. Um, <laughs> if you listen to the show, sometimes you'd be like, wow, Ross knows a fair amount about food. I'm like, I just read chef memoirs and cookbooks sometimes. This is really, a, I'm, well, not, I'm not that great. I, I mean, in a sense, everybody's foodie game got am- upped by the pandemic, you That's know, true. and everybody yeah. was doing all the cooking. Anyway, back to um, the mind-blown shrimp. So we brought in a chef. Each episode of Fish Talk has a chef who has relevance to the topic at hand. And in this case, we brought in a great chef named Andrea Rusing. I think she's won a beard and da-da-da-da. Somebody I know from North Carolina days and from kind of interesting environmental social justice chef organization called Chefs Collaborative. So Andrea came on and we taste-tested these three shrimp. And um, I mean... You can listen to the podcast and see how it came out. I don't want to necessarily reveal the whole thing. But I think people who know me from my fish books know that they kind of go up until the emergence of plant-based seafood and now cell-based seafood that's that's coming just around the corner. And we can talk about that if you like. So in a way, having a podcast was an opportunity to go back to some of these emerging things in seafood like, I don't think I'm ever going to write another fish book. I've written three fish books. And like, I often say that I'm not famous. I am fish famous and kind of would like to be famous for something else. Or at least I don't really need to be famous anymore, but I just would like to write about something else. At the same time, I maintain myself as a lunatic fisherman. I'm always like some people check Facebook. I quit Facebook. I check fishing reports. And so I always am looking at what Vinnie Calabro is catching in Jamaica Bay, what the Captain Al is getting off of Point Lookout. The podcast, in a way, lets me keep a foot in the water, so to speak, and kind of keep extending these stories into the future that I'd already reported on. I think so. And I can understand you wanting to to break out of, of this fish space. I'm not sure the podcast was a step in the right direction for that, really, <laughs> ultimately. Well, well, no, I mean, you know, when you write a book, when you write several books, you spend a lot of time on the radio. And um, I've been with good interviewers and bad interviewers. I've been on Terry Gross a number of times. And, you know, it was this, I realized that there was this whole skill set that potentially I could develop as an interviewer that given a little bit of opportunity, a little bit of funding was there. So yes, I was ready to throw my body on the pyre of fish once again. But in the process, I think I you know learned another skill. It also made me feel, you know, I don't know if you feel this way. Prior to launching your podcast, like what was your background as a journalist and as an investigator of, of topics? Probably the most relevant thing was I worked on uh, documentaries of various types, mostly mostly digital, nothing that made it theatrical, but yeah. quite a lot of, of filmmaking, I think is right. the most connected. 
Well, I mean, what's interesting, right? So as a documentarian, and I think this is true as a print journalist as well, you realize that there are like hundreds of hours of conversations that you had that are really interesting, that are really, you know, really go into something very deeply. And then, especially like when I write for the New York Times, like they just boil you down, boil you down, boil you down, boil you down. And you get a, you know, this two hour conversation becomes a sentence. And it ain't like a hologram where you can shine a light through a, a snippet of holographic film and get a whole picture. That's true. <laughs> it doesn't really work that way with journalism. And a lot of times there's also, I find, you know, I think it was Joan Didion who said that writers are always selling somebody out. And you do feel that way in the editing process because you cut away so much of what that person is about and just turn them basically into a vehicle for your own ideas. I feel like the podcast done correctly is much more of a, le a level playing field, potentially. I mean, you still have your fingers on the controls of the editing, but you do allow for a longer thought process into all these things. Like, for example, like in, in the shrimp episode, there's this guy named um, Flavio Corsin, who I met in Vietnam, back in Nam, in the, you know, in the, in the 20, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. And Flavio and I, Flavio is this incredibly interesting guy. He's like very tall, speaks fluent Vietnamese. But he speaks it like an Italian, like with all this like, crazy gesturing and stuff. And when I would, you know, we're doing video, you and I, Ross, right now, but so you can see my reactions. But listeners imagining a Vietnamese person, like they're generally the height factor is a factor when you're talking to somebody who's six three, six four, and they would sort of bend down at him and he would be gesturing on top of them, telling them about what makes for sustainable aquaculture and what doesn't. Anyway, he was just a very layered, complex, interesting person who had like a million girlfriends in Vietnam. And, you know, it was just very fascinating. And it was so nice to be able to return to Flavio, somebody I really liked, and being able to have a, a long, meaningful conversation. The other thing I think also is, as a journalist, I always, I, I don't know, I, I like to make friends, you know, I have a lot of friends in my life. And it's pro a bit of a problem that, you know, I don't, ever think of the people I interview as sources. I always think of them as people I want to get to know. So I guess this was another opportunity to, you know, express that part of my personality. All of that is, is very interesting and good to say. And Flavio is nothing but uh, not a character. Yeah. Flavio, it, it, too many, too many double negatives there. Flavio is a character is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and it comes through very strongly in the show. Yeah. I agree with you too. I thought filmmaking was pretty challenging to tell a complex story in general. Like if you watch documentaries, most of them have a little bit of an ax to grind a little bit. Yes. Most of them have a conclusion of writing your congressman about this or that at the end of it, or um, especially if it's about a food topic or something like that, there isn't a, there isn't a lot of room to let things sink in and, and think about it. Really. I'm trying to think of films that don't do that. I think the act of killing is probably the last one I saw where I was just like, what even happened there? I mean, I just right. need to let that sink into my soul. But a lot of them have a strong activist bent. Or if you listen to this podcast, you probably like it because I don't feel like uh, the show has a really strong activist bent. We talked to lots of people who believe lots of different things. Yeah. So maybe if you're a fan of the show, you self-select into the crew of just curious people who are down for the intellectual ride. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, I do feel like there is a tendency of journalism to try and 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 I and within the the rubric of journalism I include the sort of cookie cutter documentary or activist documentary which is just you know tie things up with a message and it's also to me a very american thing you know I I lived and worked abroad quite a bit in my 20s and 30s you know I lived in France I lived in Russia I lived in the former Yugoslavia and you know you look at a european movie right 
a high quality French movie does not really end like an American movie most of the time. Things are left very unresolved, very uncommitted. And to me, that's a much more truthful way of approaching life. I think it's one of the reasons I actually think it's the dead end that Americans have gotten themselves into in this moment of climate crisis, actually, because there's actually not really a happy ending coming. You know, there is a complicated, messed up thing and will probably struggle through. It's a little bit like my son is taking AP European history right now, and we're in the middle of the 30 years war, you know, and what a mess, you know, and it doesn't really end up with any kind of great situation at the end of it. It's just a mess. And that's the mess that we're in. So again, going back to what makes a podcast good, I think is that you can leave things kind of open-ended and a little bit fun. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, the podcast is nothing except for that. Oh, God, another double negative like that. That's confusing. <laughs> yes, the show does leave lots of unanswered questions. And that's part of the fun because I don't feel like me or anyone else probably has all of those relevant answers to us. With regard to like American and European cinema, definitely the case. Have you seen Adaptation or seen it recently? Love Adaptation. Uh, it's like way, way up there. Oh, yeah. It's one of my faves, too. But I love that because the whole movie, you know, he's trying to avoid turning the movie into some three-act structure, horrible, formulaic movie. And then he asks his brother for help and it turns into one. And then the movie, like, finally clicks and it works. And it it isn't just about anxiety and unresolved little moments of tension. That's right. Well, if you'll recall, his brother sort of has a hand in it. But the person who really kind of starts moving him in the direction is a guy named Bob McKee, who... Yeah. um. So Bob McKee's played by the guy from Succession. What's his name? Brian Cox. So Brian Cox. So in adaptation, Bob McKee is played by Brian Cox, you'll recall. And prior to seeing adaptation, my brother, who is a screenwriter, who wrote Halloween H2O, who wrote Children of the Corn Part 3, who has a story credit on the most recent Pet Cemetery, who is the most Hollywood guy you will ever imagine. So we went... As a birthday present, he got me tuition to Bob McKee's story course. Oh, wow. So my brother and I and my good friend, Kuzi Cram, who's a playwright here in New York, we all three went and had two days of Bob McKee telling us about story structure, you know, surprising, but inevitable. Like that's what it, those are his two. So surprising, but inevitable. And if you'll recall, in Adaptation, the Charlie Coffin character, he's so stuck that he goes to a Bob McKee seminar as run by Brian Cox, as Bob McKee says, just whatever you do, don't use a deus ex machina. And then, of course, that's what he does to end the whole thing and bring it to a tidy, nice conclusion. But yeah, and it, you know, it, it really busts my balls the way everybody is roped into this. And, you know, to some degree, if we want to get super meta and go back to climate, you know, this happy ending is part of capitalism's story that tells you that it's all going to work out, you know? And you think about, like, where do films come from? Well, they come from capitalism. You know, this is going back to before I was a fish guy, before I was a Russia guy, I went to Brown University, and there I studied semiotics. Oh, God, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. actually, I was, a Russian, I was a Russian major, but I, I was would have been a semiotics minor had, had Brown had semiotics minors. But in any case... I was really into semiotics. And then when I started becoming a journalism, actually journalist, I went back to Brown uh, for the Boston Globe Ideas section and interviewed all my old semiotics professors to understand like what was semiotics all about. And what semiotics is all about, you know, as Roland Barthes said, he has a great phrase, something like, I had this fantasy 
or I had this this dream that by deconstructing this narratives that the bourgeoisie tells itself, I might block by block deconstruct this myth and re- reveal what reality really is. So there's a lot of, you know, clove cigarette smoking, black turtleneck wearing nonsense that goes on in the semiotics program. But it is true. And the more I get into what semiotics would call the diegesis, you know, the, the internal shit of story making and the way that capital affects story making, it is totally true that over and over and over again, we creators are telling these bourgeois fantasies to maintain the illusion that capitalism would like us to maintain. And part of that story as an environmental journalist is that we will find a way. We fix the ozone hole and da 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 da. So the same narrative is kind of trying to work with climate, except it's not working because the very things that create the climate crisis are the very underpinnings of capitalism. So you can't really use bourgeois storytelling to dismantle this beast that is destroying the planet. And expect uh, you to go, go full, uh, <laughs> full commie on me. Here, well, but... it, I mean, you know, the thing is you can enjoy the splendors of capitalism and still be disgusted by it. You know what I mean? Foie gras is delicious, but in fact, that's, we're all having it shoved down our throats and it may not be, you or me or your generation or my generation that ends up cracking this nut. I, I have been interested lately about, I've been reading a little bit about eco-Leninism and different takes on- mom, Mom's book? Is that what you've been reading? I've been reading around Andreas Mom's book. Have you had him on the show? No, I read one of his other ones though. I saw his, his recent one was about a, yeah, sort of eco-Leninism and yeah. dictatorship of the proletariat coming and it's the only way out. I mean, at the same time, I lived and worked in the former Soviet Union. I I lived and worked first in the Soviet Union, and then I lived and worked in the former Soviet Union. And I saw what a complete shit show that situation was, both vis-a-vis the environment and vis-a-vis just like lethally normal comforts that people need in order to live their lives. So neither solution seems to have worked, in in part because I think that, as anyone will realize, is that the Soviet Union was not a true socialist state and, um, you know, People rose to the top like the pigs in animal farm. You know, some all animals are equal except more animal. One, some animals are more equal than others. And that's what we had in the Soviet Union. Did not expect this to go into. Sorry, sorry, sorry. We can go back to no, fish if you want. No, 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 I'm giving you a chance to break out. That's exactly what you Thank wanted. Thank you. I, I appreciate I, it. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that you uh, crammed into that and a lot that's worth unpacking. I remember one argument I had some years ago with a friend who is like uh, died in the wool Leninist. Classical Marxists, which of which he was one, do not like this sort of postmodern focus on stories and semiotics, especially ones that say, like, for instance, if you say that there is reality lurking under it, you have to just peel away the bourgeois layer of storytelling, and then you can peer into reality. Where someone who's like a postmodernist or metamodernist might look at that and say, like, it's all stories all the way down. The bourgeoisie exploiting the proletariat is one story among many. Mm-hmm. I feel like he was so invested in that story that it was the only story that could be told within his way of thinking. It was very orthodox, very weird, very hard to argue against too. So I'm like a little careful about, I think this show has a respect for a kaleidoscopic view of stories mm-hmm. and recognize that some of them reveal as much as they uh, obscure at the same time, being able to flip between them. Maybe you buy that, maybe you don't. Um, maybe it takes away from your revolutionary uh, <laughs> well, place I- the flag. Listen, I'm also the child of shrinks, 
So, you know, so I understand that a construct is a construct is a construct. And hey, aren't you looking forward to the Matrix 4? Is there more to, to be said on that? Uh, I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. You know, just, <laughs> I'm just we're talking about taking, you know, uh, Baudrillard and all that. Sure, there are always going to be realities underneath realities. But do you have, I, I personally just don't have confidence in the current paradigm of, you know, call it dialectics, if you will. There's a, you know, if the journalistic dialectics are like, there's a problem, the journalist sees the problem, the journalist exposes the problem, the problem reaches the lawmakers and the lawmakers resolve it, and the problem is solved and we move on to the next problem. Like that whole loop seems to be really not connected anymore. Maybe it was never connected, but there doesn't seem to be, you know, especially with the undermining of journalism in general, there doesn't seem to be a real feedback. There is no consensus of government, so therefore you can't have a message coming from journalism that causes significant change within the way that governments work. So I just feel like that thing that we, I mean, I'm sensing a like mind in that, you know, probably similar forces brought us into the world of wanting to report, right? Like you were, you know, wanting to address problems, wanting to somehow bring things to the light. We didn't weren't necessarily going to go ourselves into solar engineering. Maybe we didn't have the chops for that particular thing, but that somehow by leading the voices of solar engineering into this public forum, we were going to address this problem. But I just feel like we're we're coming up against something too big. I don't know if it's too big or we're not small enough. I think if we were making memes, we'd probably be a lot more persuasive. Yeah, that could be too. That could be too. The other thing that guides me sometimes is, have you ever read a book called Ecotopia? Ernest Collenbach, and it was a book, it came out in the mid-70s. I only came across it because at the time, and this loops us back to fishing, but my first sort of professional job in fish was uh, I took a year off from college, and then I got a gig with the Student Conservation Association in the mid-80s, counting salmon in the coast range of Oregon. So every day I just walk up rivers counting salmon, actually non-existent salmon, because at the time they were logging the shit out of the coast range. And so the salmon runs were winking out right and left. But there was this guy, a graduate student at the time, who who would pick me up in the truck. His name was Steve Hurley. And he'd be like, he'd slam the door and be like, oh, today I just want to talk about my reusable cup. My reusable cup is really, if only everyone had a reusable cup. And then he would go on this like long monologue about some particular environmental thing. And it took about an hour to drive from Eugene to the coast range and go on and on and on. And then, you know, at the end of it, he'd, you know, slap a piece of literature on my lap and say, read this. But the one thing that I really did read was this book called Ecotopia. So Ecotopia was a bestseller in the middle 70s. It was written by Ernest Kallenbach. And the concept is that Washington State, Oregon, and Northern California secede from the United States in some future, you know, not too far into the future. And our, it's a kind of Gulliver's Travels. And our hero, I can't remember what his name is, he works for the New York Times Post News, like some conglomerate back in New York. He receives the first Ecotopia visa, journalism visa. And so he's invited to Ecotopia like 15, 20 years after independence to report back on what goes on in Ecotopia. And that has always stayed with me. It's not that great a book, but I mean, sold many, you know, sold over a million copies, 
course, he has sex with an ecotopian in a hollowed out redwood tree, which is awesome. <laughs> and he, you know, does all these things. He explores ecotopian medicine and he explores ecotopian war games, which are these ways of releasing tension and so forth. But Ecotopia has never left me, even though, again, it's a cheeseball book. I've written about it a little bit for the New York Times, but I can't help coming back to that idea that we need a reboot and a restart. Like, I don't see an evolution of where we are to where we need to get as a society. You don't think there's a nicer, squishier version of capitalism coming? It's going to pull it off? I don't see. I just I don't see it. There could be in other countries, maybe, you know, where there's more of a, it could happen in Denmark, maybe. But to me, um, I do think there's just some credence to the fact that these, I think there was a book came out actually around the same time as Ecotopia came out a few years after it was called, I think, The Seven Nations of, of North America. And it was sort of describing the United States as basically being five or six different countries. And I think that's kind of what we're dealing with when you need to come to, I mean, look at COVID, right? Like what's more of a mortal threat and that we couldn't come up with a consensus when there actually was visible harm right in front of us. It seems doubtful. Yeah. Well, I sort of buy the fact that maybe the country is just too big in general to be governed effectively. It's too, too big, too diverse. And that makes it really hard to make good decisions at times when we really need to. We have so little influence over. I, I used to have really strong opinions about so many things. <laughs> As I've gotten older, I've, I've relaxed that standard I held myself to once upon a time. Because um, also one of the reasons why that Leninist friend of mine drove me a little bit crazy was because he was a mirror image of a younger libertarian version of myself that had my own formulas for running everything through and coming to a hard line conclusion about. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I don't want to stray too far from my, my Fish Talk podcast. On the, to argue the other side of it, this country actually really did fix our fisheries. You know, we were headed towards a total overfished Mediterranean type situation, Mediterranean being one of the most overfished bodies of water in the in the world, with multiple nations surrounding it. And, you know, the same sort of thing where you have multiple jurisdictions and all these different states in the United States that are sovereign over their waters out to about 10 miles out to sea. And you would think that we would have just driven our, our, our fisheries into the ground, but actually first with the Magnuson-Stevens Act in the middle 70s that kind of set us on the course to at least trying to figure out what stable fisheries would be. And then with the amendment in 1996 of the Sustainable Fisheries Act, we basically made overfishing illegal in this country and have more or less executed that plan. Now, I was talking with um, Carl Safina, who's actually a guest on the show. I think he's on the Striped Bass episode that we do on Fish Talk. He was saying, you know, we were talking at one point and he said, when you think about it, fisheries are kind of quaint as a problem compared to something like climate change, because it's you just got to not fish so much, you know. And um, so far, we haven't built cities in the sea. We haven't, you know, ripped up the actual infrastructure that makes the ocean work. So just simply figuring out what are the right formula for allowing people to fish while at the same time allowing fish populations to maintain a certain base capital, as they fishery scientists like to think of fish populations as the sort of the you know the money in your bank account, and that in an ideal scenario you're really just catching the interest off of that bank account. So anyway, all that's by way of saying through a number of different tweaks that we did 
to American fisheries, we more or less have gotten there. The problem is, is that 80 to 90 percent of our seafood is imported. And that is the escape valve from which we escape our own regulation and then import all sorts of illegal stuff and poorly farmed stuff and things like that. And people say that's a pretty common strategy for many industries these days, right? Yep. Yep. For sure. For sure. But very, very rarely do they... Well, no, I was about to say very rarely do they end up in a net environmental benefit, but I guess you could say that they do. I mean, when you think about the degree to which we've outsourced our industry to countries that are now bearing the brunt of the pollution that those industries carry, you know, the garment industry, all those kinds of things. So, yes. And, I, you know, and, and now we're into this, you know, to circle back to this whole kind of capitalist conversation we were having and this Marxist conversation. Now we're in this position where a country like China, which was bearing the brunt of the pollution that the goods of the world required for their production. Now we're getting to the point where what does happen when China gets to a point where they decide that they want a clean environment and they're no longer willing to allow polluting industries to be based in China? What does the United States do at that point? Do we just move to another kind of range of sort of poor countries that are going to be the receptacles for our bad behavior? Or will the, the loop finally be closed and we'll actually as a globe, have to kind of come up with global standards for protecting the planet. I don't know. Mm. Uh, it seems more likely that it'll just probably move somewhere else. I think that's yeah. happened a number of times. But yeah. But what is interesting is that, like, if you go back to fisheries, China actually is starting to be pretty seriously concerned about its local fisheries and is starting to actually listen to some of the NGOs who've been talking about trying to kind of come up with sustainable fisheries policies in their near shore. Just because they realize that they can't, their their population requires fish, and they have a huge coastline, and it's largely overfished at this point. So, trying to kind of get that to some kind of balance will be interesting to see what happens in the next ten years in terms of fisheries. Which is why, again, I'm prepared to keep reporting on these stories because I think they are ever evolving. Sure, there's going to be more to talk about with fisheries, but I also know you don't only want to be doing that, as we've referred to a few times. So yeah. I imagine you have a couple other arrows in your quiver you'd prefer to be shooting in the meantime. What, yeah. a, what have you got going on? Well, a couple things. This year during the pandemic, I bought an acre of land, and I didn't buy it with any particular cohesive idea in mind. It was just that I wanted to own some piece of land that was climate safe. So I did a fair amount of research to try and find what I was looking for. I ended up in the Adirondacks, um, which is about six hours north of New York City. And it's kind of in a climate sweet spot, although, you know, I'm sure you've had many guests on your show who say there's no place that's safe from climate change. But in the near term, when you look at the Adirondacks, you know, they're high, but not like crazy high that you're in a alpine situation. But you generally you get a one and a half degrees Celsius of cooling for each thousand feet of elevation that you gain. And then they're considerably far north. They are wet and they are only going to get wetter, according to present models of people that are looking at the Adirondacks. And they're going to get a little warmer. And frankly, right now, the Adirondacks are too cold for me. It's not unusual to have a string of days in January in the minus 20 to minus 30 range, or it used to be not unusual. But they're warming to a point where it's interesting because a lot of people from Massachusetts, some parts of southern Vermont are actually moving to the Adirondacks because they miss winter. And the Adirondacks being high enough and north enough and wet enough, generally speaking, you'll get at least a couple of months of real winter. So anyway, so I bought this acre and I'm 
just sitting on it and deciding what to do. You know, I wrote this book just before the climate diet. I wrote this illustrated book called Goodbye Phone, Hello World. And it was like an illustrated book that did pretty well. It was just about, you know, and I myself gave up my iPhone except for the, as we said, just for recording purposes. So my illustrated editor at Chronicle is waiting for another book from me. And so the book I'm thinking about doing is called 50 Dreams for an Acre. And it's just an illustrated book where I want to like explore. I want to talk to a lot of land use people, energy people, and just try to find out like, what would you do with an acre? And I'm not 100% sure I would build something on this acre, but if I did, how would I do it? And then of course, there's just all different, you know, I don't know if you feel this way, but you know, the life of the journalist is so um, increasingly fractalated or something. It's just getting more pixelated. And so recently, um, Medium came to me and offered me a deal like, you know, you know how there's like Substack and Patreon and Medium, and they're sort of going to different individual authors and saying, if we pay you something, will you be a regular contributor? And this will kind of hopefully prompt other non-paid contributors to kind of provide fodder for the, uh, you know, for, for all that. So I um, have this deal with Medium. They're looking for like longitudinal stuff. So some sort of like year long journey. So will the year long journey be about my acre? It could be. The other thing that I have going on here is that, you know, I live at Ground Zero in New York. And um, for the last 15 years, I've maintained a terrace garden, which I refer to as the Ground Zero Garden. And if you look online, I did a piece about it for the New York Times and for the Guardian, um, two different pieces for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And so I continue to develop that. And so that might be my longitudinal story. You know, we are we are salad self-sufficient up here on the 10th floor for, I'd say, nine months out of the year. We produce one bottle of wine, which is called Chateau Nul. Nul for zero. But in French, if you want to say somebody's a total loser, you say, de nul. So, so that's the story. Yeah. So, so maybe what I'm working on is kind of pinging back and forth between my acre upstate and my terrace down here, but it's inchoate enough not to really be a book proposal quite yet. And, you know, nowadays, especially if you're a white guy trying to sell a book, you really need a really solid book proposal if you're going to be able to come out of the gate strong. So rather than rush into writing another book, I'm kind of content to have a podcast, to have a medium column, to let the ideas kind of accrete. You know, my son is now headed to college soon. And so like the immediate pressures are not on me as they were. So I'm trying to take a little time to let these things breathe a little bit. So that's where I'm at. A lot of good ideas in there. It sounds interesting that I would be happy to listen to or <laughs> read. Okay. You being a potential homesteader, that's fun. Typically yeah. a right-wing hobby. So it's nice to nice to hear a yeah. little bit. <laughs> well, you know, I exclusively, also, but <laughs> I no, I know. I also had thought about another way of looking at this idea is like Walden 2.0 or at this point 3.0, in the sense of that. You know, if you read, I read, uh, reread Walden as part of my research for Goodbye Phone, Hello World. And, you know, it's a, it's not really about homesteading. It's really about clearing your mind out and about um, focusing on, <clears throat> I don't know, what's important in, in you know, it, it's, it's living the life of a poet and taking moments as they come and many other things. I do like the framework of focusing you know, I before COVID, I traveled a tremendous amount. I probably was on the road a week out of every month or maybe a week out of every two months reporting on stories all over the world. 
And it took COVID for me to realize that I actually really had come to hate that. I don't really, turns out, turns out I don't really like traveling anymore. And to go into a deep meditation on an acre seems really cool to me. The other thing I think is really interesting, and, you know, it's a little bit like, as a freelancer, you're always a little bit working an angle, right? Like you're always like, oh, how, how can I get this? So the idea has occurred to me, could I get a war going amongst all the composting toilet companies, for example, to see who would supply the composting toilet to my acre? Could I get a war going between all of the micro home kit builders to get who's going to give me the kit? And it's a little like stone soupy too. Like, you know, the house has stone soup. You know, I got the stone. You, can you, <laughs> all I need are walls, roofs, windows, electricity. <laughs> That's a great idea. It's a solid gold idea. <laughs> great opportunity for your brand. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, and also it's, I don't know, you know, and this is, you know, before we started talking, before we started recording, I asked you if we could go a little meta on this. It's like, it's a little hard to figure out in this whole model where is the income coming from? You know what I mean? Like nobody, especially the Gen Z's of the world, the millennials of the world are supposedly averse to self-promotion, right? So you're not supposed to self-promote. You're not trying to sell anything. So, and, and if you're not selling anything, you're not quite earning anything. So everything seems to be on the level of barter. So I guess that's the question, the existential question I'm proposing is like, could we barter? Can we talk? Can we talk green home kit? company? Can we talk? Composting toilet company? I'm ready to talk. You know? <laughs> Are they, you think they're that hip to Gen Z? You probably have some some older guys used to like, oh yeah, we pay. this is the amount that we pay for this amount of, of brand value that is being generated. I guess it is barter. I mean, what's the difference really? But yeah, it, it's very indirect and, and rather abstract for how much value is being created for Nori as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of what happened with, you know, with Fish Talk, you know, we were sponsored by uh, Sitka Salmon Shares. And, um, you know, it was a sort of interesting Genesis story in the sense that um, Nick Mink, my co-host, I, I first met him because he's a professor in Southern Illinois at a place called college, Knox College. And four fish had come out and I was sort of on the lecture circuit and he had me come and I lectured. And then after uh, I lectured, he put me in a car with three undergrads to drive me back to the airport far, far away in Chicago. And then in front of us, a truck in front of us dumped a load of two by fours onto the highway and it blew out all four tires. We ended up at the side of the road and talking with Nick on the phone a lot, trying to solve and get me to the airport eventually. Eventually I missed my flight, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so that was my introduction to my co-host. And then, but in the course of my lecture, I, you know, somebody had asked, you know, well, what what is the future? How can we solve this fish problem? I was like, well, we really need to think about local distribution of seafood. Da, 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 da. So something I said, I mean, I don't know, Nick will probably say otherwise, but something I said might have seeded something to Nick. And lo and behold, Nick started Sitka Salmon Shares from Southern Illinois, and it became a really successful home delivery company. And then I ran into Nick again when I was making, I did, an, I did a frontline doc with actually Frontline's creator, uh, David Fanning, who turns out to be a crazy, crazy fisherman, ended up going all over the world for this doc. And we were in Sitka, Alaska, like having a salmon cookout and trying to shoot a scene. And who should show up? But Nick Mink walks out of the forest. He's like, hey, man, how's it going? I haven't seen you since Southern Illinois. And then, you know, whatever, I went did my documentary. And meanwhile, Sitka Salmon Shares grew and grew and grew and grew. And during the pandemic, they had a huge year, as anyone who did home delivery of food did. And they had an excess and they said, hey, you know, Nick said, you want to do a, a show together? And that's pretty much how the Fish Talk podcast was born. And so that was pretty interesting. I mean, you know, but as you say, like, we weren't in any way obligated to like burnish the brand of Sitka. But 
I think you're right. I think the consumers want to know that this company that is selling you fish is actually concerned about the future of the ocean. I think if you were more salesy, it'd probably be counterproductive. There's a, I'm a pretty passionate gardener and there's a great permaculture nursery out of Portland called One Green World. And I think I found them just by doing research on companion plants and nitrogen fixers. Mm, And they just had some great articles about it. It's like, oh, I should like read more, but at no point were they trying to, to sell to me too much. And in fact, yeah. if they would, I would start not trusting it as much. In fact, they even talk about some plants, which they do not carry if memory serves. Oh, that's really good. That's the funny thing. I mean, you know, so I'm like, I think we're, we have a little bit of space between our generations, you and I, and like, I grew up watching really shitty television that was just rife with shitty ads. And that's one of the things we play a little bit with on fish talk. Like, on the tuna episode of Fish Talk, like I take a snippet from Charlie the Tuna, the Starkist thing. Now, this Charlie Tuna actually still exists. He's actually considered one of the most recognizable advertising characters in history. But here's this here's a scenario of Char- Charlie Tuna is the tuna. I think he's Jewish, actually. Like he's like a Jewish tuna because he's like very kind of schlep, schlubby, and he de- he doesn't he feels kind of excluded from the club. You know what I mean? Like there's something. So Charlie, all he wants to do, he wants to be caught and killed and eaten <laughs> by the starkest. That's like, that's like he's star- very very Jewish. Yeah, by the starkest consumers. Like, oh, just kill me, please. I I'll do anything. And he keeps saying. I have really good taste. And he makes modern sculptures. He like does classical music, all to show that he has good taste. And then, of course, his little fish companion says, but Charlie, Stockist don't want tunas with good taste. Stockist wants tuna that tastes good. And, and then this note comes down on the fish hook. Sorry, Charlie, we're not going to kill you and eat you and put you on a sandwich in the club. <laughs> it's sick. It's a sick, 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 sick ad. But in any way, depending back to what we were talking about, that's what I grew up in, you know, relentlessly selling all the time, you know, and because we only had, it was pre-cable, there were only three shitty channels of television on all the fucking time. Your parents didn't care about you. You were in your room doing your homework in front of the television with relentless advertising and it embedded it yourself. And I'm like, shit, man, my brain is infected, infected with this stuff. So like then fucking... Millennials and Gen Z people come along like, hey, man, don't sell to us. Just like tell us about like what's good. And like then we'll come along. And I'm like, OK, but my brain is infected with capitalism. Help me. Help me. So, you know, this kind of brings it full circle to some degree. Like this is why I'm so angry at capitalism, because they infected my brain. I watched too many episodes of Little House in the Prairie interspersed with Alpo dog food ads and Starkist tuna ads and Beefsteak Charlie ads selling unlimited shrimp and salad bars. I mean, it's enough. So I feel like maybe what I should do with the time remaining to me on Earth is spend a lot of time trying to deprogram myself and hopefully deprogramming my listeners, readers, etc. Because so my partner, Esther Drill, she started um, one of the a really successful early web 1.0 company called girl.com, G-U-R-L. And the concept of that was that when she was a teenager, you know, there was only shitty body image stuff for girls available, like Seventeen Magazine, da 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 da. And so they created this like co- this company called Girl.com that was like all body image positive. They wrote a bestseller called Deal with It, and it was really cool. It was really groundbreaking. Then they got bought by a packager, 
called Deal Is, and they sold to something else, blah, 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 blah. And who should buy it eventually? Seventeen magazine. So, like, capitalism is endlessly creative in co-opting and sucking you in. So, you know, it's a little bit like host and virus. You know, we creators, I think, are the host. Capitalism is the virus. We're trying to outpace it. And every time we take a step forward, it takes one more step to try to try to infect us. So my plan for the next 30 years, I'm lowering my overhead and raising my aggression and uh, trying to be more good, less less co-opted. I'm trying to think of what it would look like if it weren't within a capitalist paradigm. <laughs> well, hmm. there's a problem there. I do believe in the profit motive in terms of keeping you motivated to do stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I think, gosh, I mean, if I didn't have to earn a living, I don't know that I would write anything. Writing is is very exhausting and hard. It's, I imagine it's it even miserable. is pro like you. Yeah, okay, miserable. There you have it's it. It's miserable. I mean, it's often miserable. There are great moments that happen, and I'm glad to have written what I wrote. But you know, I think you know, going back to your question, could capitalism take a more friendly form? I just think you know what I really actually you know I lived in France for a couple of years, and I commissioned a lot of um, freelancers, you know, camera people, um, sound people, et cetera, et cetera. What's interesting about France and the French model is that in France, there's not really such a thing as a freelancer. When you hire a freelancer, you have to pay into their benefits, their retirement, their medical, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of feel like that kind of model would work because, you know, you as a creative, as a creative you only have so many creative years, right? And it doesn't occur to you in the storm of creativity that you're in in your 30s and 40s that you're ever going to run out of juice. I think a kinder system would um, take that into account. Yeah, I suppose so. And I do think that one of the more pernicious elements of our current economic system is, uh, much as I don't love political memes, one that I thought was pretty interesting was, I think it was just some tweet someone had about how capitalism trains us to monetize all of our hobbies. It's like, you mm. can't just knit now. Now you have to start an Etsy store, be a knitting influencer. Right. You can't just enjoy knitting. You have to also turn it into like an entire brand. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, that that's the thing is that, you know, who has been a big influence to me in that respect is, um, have you ever read or heard of the Nearings, Helen and Scott Nearing? So they wrote a book called uh, Living the Good Life, and um, they were some of the early homesteaders, and they kind of helped start the homesteading movement first in the 30s and then later on in the 60s because they homesteaded from the 30s all the way forward, and they got rediscovered by the hippies in the 60s and 70s. But Nearing, um, the Nearings had a ideal way that you should organize your day, that you should have, you know, let's say that there's a 15-hour day of stuff that you're going to do before sleeping. So one-third of that would be bread labor. And in their case, actually physically farming, one third of it would be vocation in the literal sense of calling, like be it knitting, be it violin playing or whatever. And one third of it would be community development, you know, giving yourself over to the betterment of the community. And I mean, Scott Nearing was one of those virulently anti-capitalist, as was his partner, Helen. They were hugely anti-capitalist in their in their in their framework. But that model, I wrote, I ended up writing about them because I, I wrote a piece called The Brand Called Vermont about Vermont and how did Vermont kind of get this image that it has and then discovered the nearings in the process and then eventually wrote a whole piece about them and visited their homesteads and came to know there's now a homestead training institute on the property of the nearing 
homestead in um, Cape Rozier in Maine. And you can actually apply to be the, the nearings are long dead, but you could apply to be the nearings for a year and live on their homestead and root through their compost piles. Someone tell you you've always been the groundskeeper or something spooky <laughs> like that. They're shining <laughs> on you. I guess. But I mean, that model has always been, has been key to me. And um, meanwhile, I haven't really lived that life. I've been living in New York city and, you know, there's not a better instrument for accruing debt than living in New York City. And, um, you know, fortunately, I think we're not particularly in debt, my partner and I at this point. But, you know, I was going to say on his tombstone, but I think like Nearing doesn't even have a proper grave. But there's like a signpost that says like the thing that he says, one of his maxims, pay as you go. And I think that's the life that I would like to live. And, you know, with kudos to podcasts, Fish Talk the Podcast you know, any kind of podcast. It is nice that now there are these formats that can be vocations. Again, if you lower your overhead and have a reasonable lifestyle, any of these things that you and I are doing, any forms of these communications are pretty cheap to do and they can be done. Um, It's just, you know, getting off of the profit train or getting off the debt train that is, you know, requisite if you're going to actually live that kind of life. Yeah, I'm also, I would almost want to revise the comment I made too of how many things would you do where you're not paid or, or have to do? Because surely there's plenty of work even under a non capitalist framework that one must do. Even Lenin quoted St. Paul, right? He who does not work shall not eat. So even still, like you're going to have to do some work under there. What, what is the difference, actually? I'm not even sure. Maybe it's like internalized that you have to do this to be successful or some sort of commercials infecting your brain as a child and programming you in that way. I feel like I don't I'm spinning my wheels here. I mean, I think that, you know, we're primates and we're very affected by the question of status. I mean, there's, there are countervailing forces, right? Like there's the Buddha tells us that status and ego are distractions from the true, real truth, which is this underlying reality of moment to moment and moments fading away, passing us literally right before our faces and being in that stream versus, you know, the capitalistic egotistical framework, which says that my work is important and it's bigger than time to some degree. And so that's why we pursue this myth, not to, you know, tie one more bolt into this whole thing. It's like, this is why Succession, I think, is such an interesting show right now and getting people involved because it is about like, did did my life mean anything? You know, did I establish an edifice that will echo through the generations, you know, but I'm, I'm really ready to step away from it, to tell you the truth. You know, it's like, I never really was very much of a money person and I don't really require a great deal. And I think you're right. I, I, one has to be really careful about making one's vocation into a profit center of some way, or, or, or let's say an ego center of one way. I mean, I gardened down here at ground zero for 10, 15 years without ever putting a brand on it. But as I was starting to exit my whole fish thing, I was like, oh gosh, yeah, I guess, you know. So I started calling it the Ground Zero Garden and it's a little bit of a label or a hashtag or whatever. But, you know, maybe Ganig, it's, you know, I shouldn't go that far with it. I want to talk about succession real quick though. Okay, sure, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't gotten that far with it. So, you know, careful. (laughs) I won't, okay, no spoilers here. One, I think succession, I love Peep Show too. Jesse Armstrong, one of the co-creators. Peep Show is probably my favorite show of all time. And this show has so many great Peep Show Easter eggs in it. And I just love it. Beautiful show. Probably the most successful piece of anti-capitalistic propaganda I've seen in television. Watching it, I'm not inherently anti-billionaire like some people are. Um, watching that show makes me feel it though, where I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, like no one should be this rich. These people are terrible. 
But uh, also those people should uh, be in therapy and probably <laughs> not be that interested in running Waystar Royco. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't make you happy. There's nothing there. Stop correcting Greg. Greg is a good boy and you're ruining him. Um, yeah. No, it's true. It's true. And, um, you know, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is pretty sure the Roys would have had a house in Greenwich. Are you born and raised West Coast? Yeah, in Arizona, but West Coast, right. definitely. So like Greenwich is like, I grew up, I went to private school in Greenwich, but I would say I live in Greenwich, but we didn't, we rented, we didn't own. Like I always, my mom always rented cottages on giant estates, you know, of mm. crumbling estates. And so we would live in the liverymen's cottage, you know, which yeah. was a proper house, you know? Yeah, sure. So anyway, I grew up amongst these, these having people. It's funny, every once in a while, I will return to Greenwich to give a talk or whatever. And I'm just always struck by how empty they are, you know, by like how hollowed out by money they are. And that this assumption that just because you ha you're rich is that that you're smart. You know, that's a really weird thing. And that's and, and it doesn't really have tenure in other countries necessarily. But here it really holds true. It's, it's, it's like this, like I've outsmarted everybody and that's why I'm rich. Whereas I feel like the English gentry are very comfortable being stupid and wealthy. Like I was just, you know, I don't know if you saw on Netflix, there's a series about Monty Python and uh, there was a very, a, one of every, they interview a lot of comics and like, what was their, and they, all the English comics, they asked, what was your favorite Monty Python skit? Twitter and all of them, Twitter, yeah, upper class oh, Twitter. Upper class Twitter, Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Classic. <laughs> so. That's so perfect. One of my favorites is always the, um. It's like the all-time summarized Proust contest. Where you'd be like, oh, it's, it's about the nature of time and of memory and things passing. And the, the, the buzzer would be, mm, sorry. <laughs> yes. To... <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Monty Python is like the mix of the very erudite and the very stupid at the same time. The sweet spot. So I'm watching this Monty Python documentary, and I was just really struck by the fact I always thought that the Holy Grail was considered the Holy Grail, like their best movie ever. And I always found it to be the best movie ever. But Life of Brian actually rates far above it. Like it's considered like number two by a lot of people and some people number for one. Life of Brian as well. Love Life y of Brian. Yeah. You know, I think I I think I need to rewatch it. I think I saw it, you know, like unlike you, I was seeing these things as they came out. And so, you know, I saw Holy Grail when it came out. And then I saw Life of Brian when it came out. I just like wasn't old enough to appreciate Life of Brian. But now it's funny, my son, you know, he's been studying, as I mentioned, he's doing AP European history. And so we're reading about a lot about the Reformation and the split between Luther and the church and then Luther and Calvin. Da, 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 da. And now when I've been watching, they have various clips of Life of Brian in the show in the documentary and like that moment when there's the followers of the gourd and that brian drinks from and then there's the followers of the shoe no the shoe is the truest no the gourd is the truest so i have to say i think i'm gonna go back and watch it i'm gonna just just reflexively say that i think it's probably the better movie <laughs> yeah you should absolutely rewatch it and yeah the sacred gourd and the shoe my favorite was always the um the sermon on the mount where they're in the back and they can't hear very well. So I think he said, "Blessed are the cheesemakers." Are the cheesemakers? And then he's and then and the cheesemaker says, or and the, the guy who's listening says, "No, no, he's he's he, he's speaking metaphorically. He means all of the small industries." Yeah. <laughs> but um, in the documentary, there's actually a funny thing where they cut to 
you know, of course, it was a huge controversy at the time, or contro- controversy, as they say. And so Michael Palin and John Cleese had to go on air with like a, a bishop and some other religious leader. And the religious leaders are just total twits, you know, and they're having to like deal with them. And, and later on, you know, John Cleese is like, the guy, the bishop is like criticizing for all, you know, these transgressions. And meanwhile, the bishop turned out to be gay. And like, you know, like it was all this a complicated thing, you know, and he's like, what are you talking about? I'll have to go and watch this then. That sounds uh, right yeah, up it's my on, alley. It's on Netflix now. I think it's like an eight or nine. But, you know, it's it's for true Pythonophiles, which I, I, I sense I'm speaking with one right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up with, I mean, the first thing I think I really loved was was definitely Holy Grail. I think kids like that one more. You have to know more about the Bible to think Life of Brian is really funny. You have to understand that yeah. you know, sort of like 30s and before Palestine, revolutionary activity, messianic. Someone could yeah, easily yeah. be mistaken for one. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. A lot yeah. of that going around. No, it's really good. I, they showed that scene from Life of Brian that's also really funny where it's like, um, you know, there's this sort of terrorist Judea cell, you know, against their own side. What have the Romans ever brought us? And, and then it's a pause of, well, aqueduct. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, no, that, that's quite good. Quite, but what else have they brought? Sanitation? Oh, yeah. The place sunk like shit before the Romans. <laughs> it's like, day after day after day. this is, this is so tangential, but I have to tell, tell this story. Um, when I was in college, I think I was a freshman, Terry Jones, who directed like all yeah. the Python movies. He, uh, and he's one of them too. In fact, the voice that you're doing sounds like him doing a lady's <laughs> voice. <laughs> um, but uh, so he was speaking and I got there first. I got there like two hours before the event. Oh my God. So I could get the best seat because we were having dinner. I was like, I want to sit next to Cherry Jones. I can't, can't even wait. Fantastic. And so I get it. I'm the first in the room. I choose the, the first seat I choose is the only one that is marked reserved. I sit next to it. The dean sat there. The ah! fucking dean. Ah! The dean. I, honestly, I've never been more disappointed than crestfallen. I think in my entire that's life. That's really. <laughs> I don't want to talk to the dean and his that's wife. That's really. That's really terrible. Oh, sorry about that. Well, Terry Jones is is all over this documentary, and I guess he and Terry Gilliam co-directed Holy Grail, which is what made it complete hell for everybody. Um, oh, I that, didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So watch watch the episode on the Holy Grail and watch the episode on uh, Life of Brian. I've pitched Michael Palin on this show before, I think, too. But I realized that was a long shot. But he had some <laughs> book that was halfway related. Where I'm like, yes, I would love to meet Michael Palin. Well, you know, you remind me one thing I wanted to make sure I told on this interview was, you know, how like stupid Internet shit just drags you all over the place. And for whatever reason, oh, you know, it was the fact that William Shatner went into space and I was, you know, with, with, on, on, was it SpaceX that he went into space on? I feel like I must have missed tracking this too closely. So he went into space. And so I inevitably went over to his Twitter feed and um, I looked at his, he had the best Twitter bio, bio ever. The Twitter bio was something like proud Canadian, former captain of the USS Enterprise, no podcasts. Oh, wow. <laughs> Because clearly there must be a bajillion Star Trek podcasts that are like, hey, Mr. Shatner, I mean, Captain, would you possibly be on my podcast? Countless. I can't even imagine. <laughs> you imagine? No podcast. Like, it's just so brilliant. No podcast. Like, like of course, oh, Captain, I respect that totally. No podcast. I wouldn't dare <laughs> summon you from if the If you're bridge. only going to do one, you should do mine. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, I do have a niece who's training as an astronaut, so you know maybe through her I can work it, work the channels. 
Yeah. See if you can make that happen. Yeah. This show was very fun. I feel like we kind of got away from it, but I think people have a good sense of your voice, who you are. And if they enjoyed this and spending time with you, surely they'll enjoy your work and your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, fish, you know, today, fish, tomorrow, the galaxy. Yeah. I want to track your, <laughs> I want to track your homesteading thing project. If you do it, uh, yep. of course. There's a little thing up on Medium right now as part of one of my first essays as a paid columnist. Um, I think it's called, Is There Any Place Safe from Climate Change? You could link to that if you feel like it. Nice. Sure. Happy to, to do that. Links to all these things are in the show notes. And thanks for coming back on the show for uh, an extended bonus episode that was unexpectedly <laughs> mostly about television and comedy, it seems yeah, like yeah, at this yeah. point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Ross. And, um, you know, I I, oh, I recognized the wide ranging mind the first time we spoke, and I'm glad we were able to, to flesh it out a even more. Yeah, me too. Thank you, Paul. Uh, and if you like the show, please give us a great rating and review on iTunes. I started doing that too recently. So if you're on Spotify, give us a great rating. Uh, that would help a lot. And thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.